I'm very excited today to have David Hewen with us, who's one of the top HR executives in Austin. David, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Us. Thanks for inviting me. So before we dive into your per, your experience in M&A and kind of uh, the anecdotes that, that you can share with us, mm. let's talk about your background. Walk us through. Sure. So uh, I sometimes simply say I'm an HR geek, and um, I come through it in a rather traditional fashion. So academically, bachelor's, master's, uh, this is from University of San Francisco. And I had an early lucky break. So uh, I had a champion who was willing to take me on at a big uh, semiconductor company, NEC Electronics, Japanese-based firm. So in the early 90s, I ran HR on scale, semiconductor, Silicon Valley, um, large company, multiple disciplines of HR, all the ones you would expect, compensation, benefits, Fits, employment law, recruiting, and the like, right? So that was a great exposure. We came out here to raise uh, our kids because um, we could do that here. It's tougher in San Francisco. So um, applied materials in Austin uh, brought me here. So the 90s was made up of semiconductor, large-scale semiconductor companies. I saw my profession uh, in a way in which we could uh, grow organizations rapidly. And in the case of uh, applied materials, we had to hire 1,000 people one year, lay off 400 the next year, hire another 1,000 the following year, wow. and so forth. The pattern continued. This is back when we were still getting computing power to a level of capability, 386, 486, um, Pentium chips, right? Chip power. So that was the 90s. And then I joined a startup because that's what everyone does. And a couple of venture-led startups put me into a different world um, of um, venture experiences. I would have board members who would reach out and say, hey, I've got a portfolio company. They need help. Uh, they're not looking to hire an HR pro, but they have something complex that needs to be addressed. They need to fire the VP of marketing, or they're trying to figure out how to manage equity for their next round of funding, and so forth, right? So I came to realize there was a market for outsourced HR for early to mid-stage, small to mid-sized companies, mainly in tech, because that's where I had kind of grown up to that point. So I began a firm called Austin WorkNet, and then after a few years, took on a partner. We called it Austin HR. And just by the simplicity of that name, a lot of folks found us. But we also had become established between the two of us. So there was a lot of referral business. Uh, we became found in the Austin um, community, business community at large. And so we had a very successful run. Sold it last year to a, a firm called Assure Software. They saw this was as an, a creative opportunity to build out their capabilities capabilities there in uh, uh, human capital management software, HCM software, and they saw us as sort of a consulting firm that could surround the software. So you can have software and services. So that's how we exited. My business partner and I saw that we had an opportunity that was uh, above market um, terms and it was a good time to exit. So we did. That was in 2018 and uh, I restarted Austin WorkNet as a boutique firm and fortunately I uh, carved down an agreement with the acquirers that I wouldn't restart a competitive firm but I would take on strategic work like mergers and acquisitions or uh, executive development, executive coaching and the like. And that brings us up to date. So that's where I am now. And along the way, um, probably 15-ish um, uh, mergers and acquisitions in one form or another, 
modest in comparison to your background, but certainly uh, quite a few in all different forms. Very interesting. So I'd love to learn about how the HR space, so the HR department of an organization impacts its ability to exit. Could you kind of shed light on that? Yeah, you know, uh, the human resources discipline hits mergers and acquisitions at different stages. You know, with some of the uh, more rigorous uh, acquisitions, I was in on one where um, IBM was acquiring a company, a startup that I was involved in, and they had the science of mergers and acquisitions down. So they had an M&A team. And the M&A team went from project to project, and every discipline was represented, IT and marketing and finance and HR, supply chain, and so forth. And seeing that formality of an, an acquisition gave me a sense of how it looks uh, in a very rigorous, structured fashion. So that very early on, they were determining the value of the deal through all of those lenses. Uh, so that's one way HR is partnered into an M&A, that, that um, it's viewed from the standpoint of does it fit into the total value of that deal uh, combined with these other considerations? And then ultimately, will it turn into something significant financially for the acquirer? Uh, so we're part of that um, uh, outcome um, and th- – Sometimes it's a um, uh, a proactive mm-hmm. sensibility that mm-hmm. acquirers take. Far more often, I found that it's more of the reactive. Oh yeah, we need to uh, get HR involved in this after we've determined the financial value of the deal. Right? The due diligence was all about: can we turn this into something significant? Whether it's accretive, or we're going to acquire this technology and a handful of people that go along with it. And oh yeah, we need to figure out all the things that are people related. So it will come mm-hmm. much further downstream of the deal, and that becomes a challenge because you're playing catch up to the deal and understanding where value will exist and how the human capital elements. Uh, are framed within that uh, deal value. And they're all different, as we know. How would you define human capital in the context of the value of a company? Well, my generic response to that typically is, you know, most companies, their biggest spend is what? People. Yeah. And in light of that, to what extent do they translate that major fixed cost into something significant? Uh, and uh, sometimes when I'm dealing with curmudgeonly CFOs, this is the way I'll frame it back to them if they're like, you know, you you personnel dweebs, you just make sure the transactions of your mm. profession get done. Hire them, fire them, get the uh, paperwork done, make sure benefits work and payroll is um, taken care of. But the fact of the matter is to distinguish a company's value in the marketplace, you have to maximize the outcome of um, – the work that people do, right? So you can either create a culture in which people um, come in and are allowed to take risks to bring their creative best. It's a highly diverse organization so that you have this range of ideas. I know this sounds a bit altruistic, but the data points to this. So that's where human capital begins to shape itself into um, a business uh, impact, 
And for those savvy leaders who get that, they're all over it. Uh, for others, we have to, again, play catch-up just in the example I gave with M&A deals where you may be playing catch-up because only the financial um, spreadsheet considerations were taken into account with all, without all the nuances of to what extent will we be able to transition people into this organization. That's a very similar message to one one of my prior guests, uh, Krista Ensley, gave on the show last week. She is a uh, CEO who's brought into uh, PE-backed, private equity-backed companies um, to help them scale from um, kind of post-Series A, Series B, all the way through through acquisition. And so she's been on both the buy side and the sell side. And I asked her kind of a similar question, like how do you determine value? how How do you look at companies to acquire? And she mentioned culture is super important and culture is really just people. Yeah. You know, it's good people who like what they do and are good at what they do. Um, so what are some of the strategies that you employ when you work with a company to create a strong culture? Well, I'll start with what I <clears throat> came to learn early on back in the um, early 2000s when Cirrus Logic was um, sort of the poster child of growing through acquisition, they had it down to a science. And I was talking to one of their um, deal leaders, and the way they described their most successful um, deal outcomes is if following close, literally over a weekend, they would transform the sites of the company they had acquired. So they come Monday morning, People had a shirt laid over their chair. They had business cards wow. in place. They had a um, uh, a summary of the software environment they would operate in and how to log on into the new Cirrus Logic setting. They had had signage up there. They purposely rebranded fast because they felt that the sooner we managed change to get people to the other side, to limit resistance, to limit the fact that people said, you know, we do things this way in our company and we want to hold on to that um, that history. Uh, for them, they wanted to get people rapidly adopting uh, into the Cirrus culture. So I always use that as a point of reference. I've never seen that again, but uh, it fascinated me because they they wanted to turn the corner on people resistance and um, hanging on to history, hanging on to process, and that makes a lot of sense to me. But every deal is different, right? And so in other cases, you may not want – to pull people in and have them adopt your brand. You may be buying their brand and you want to keep it in place and intact. Uh, and you know, you may want to assert, don't change a thing. We bought you for the value that you bring in and of itself, fully contained. Carry on and we'll take a slice of your value, which is kind of cool because once people are assured of that, then they're like, okay, I can get up in the next morning and breathe again. I'm going to report into the same boss, do the same work, right? Operate generally in the same environment. So that's a different form. I mean, those are two ends of a spectrum, uh, of a workable spectrum. Everything in the between those two are kind of mushy. Right? <laughs> they're all a bit of a um, a bit of a you know M and A mess to a greater or lesser extent. It's challenging. What are the um, what are the stats on successful acquisitions? 
It's very low, right? Most don't work. And why do you think that is? Well, I have a bias. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, there is a large human capital component to this. Um, certainly deals I've been involved in in which the intent was to acquire assets that uh, significantly included people uh, had to be very carefully considered. What culture are you taking on? How different is that culture from the acquirer's culture? Uh, how different are practical things such as the benefits plans um, from one organization to another, the compensation plans, the agreements that executives had that were unique to their arrival at the acquired company? You know, what if they had a change of control that essentially uh, accelerated a lot of uh, conditional things that hadn't been fully surfaced in the uh, due diligence. So these conditional elements, benefits, compensation, distinction in culture, just how things work, conservative company, progressive company, um, dramatically different systems and processes on how work flows through and gets done and the extent to which the technology environments are different. All those things slow down the production of work, right? All those are uh, barriers against coming from a highly productive organization in which you're churning out loads of work fast and you have uh, highly um, pleased customers to now in this newly acquired organization, people aren't sure how things work. And so they slow down. They question whether I want to be here. Uh, the way I frame it is where's their commitment level post-acquisition. If their commitments level low or is low, they pull back uh, their uh, level of work, their level of creativity they bring to work, and now you're a less uh, competitive company. And thus, th that then plays into it. And one or two critical, influential people leave. And when they leave, people look at that and say, that's a sign. Um, if that person leaves, uh, has left, and I viewed them as a critical influencer, I'm not convinced this is going to work for me. So people start to get distracted elsewhere, and it just plays upon itself. Recovering that is difficult. Have you worked with both buyers and sellers? I have. So I'm curious your, your opinion on this. Um, when a, a company is being acquired, who should budge in kind of conforming to a culture? Should it be the buyer uh, kind of accepting some of the unique cultural aspects of the company they're acquiring? Or should it be the, the company that's selling their company conforming to that of their buyer? Or is there maybe some kind of alternative to that? Well, um, it it's so easy to say it depends, but it yeah. does um, because where is the um, the purchasing power coming from and the the value the ultimate value residing <clears throat> does the ultimate value reside in only a slice of the acquisition we're acquiring your technology and just a handful of people associated with it mm -hmm. that's our primary asset from the purchase and everything else unfortunately, will likely go away unless we can somehow absorb some of those resources. And it could be that we as the acquirer may say, it's our intent 
and I'm not trying to say this cynically, because there could be best intentions here. Um, it's our intent to try to absorb everyone, whereas the practical mind may be saying, in all likelihood, we can't. But we, w- there's no way we can state that um, to folks because we want people to come over with minimal distractions. So that's one condition. There's a core technology we want. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, I had some, uh, a deal recently in which uh, a company was just effectively, the acquirer was purchasing in a carve-out a number of um, clients. So let's just say 500 clients have value. They want those clients. In order to bring those clients over without disruption, they really need to bring over the resources and the relationships that come with them. Otherwise, the clients will say, this feels different. I'm not getting the service and support that I was accustomed to. Um, I know you have a new uh, acquirer. There's a new owner. There's a new brand. This doesn't feel right. And thus, value diminishes um, possibly rapidly if if this is a dramatic shift in how um, service is provided, how support is provided. So that's a different type of uh, human capital impact. Yeah. So, So it does... You know, get based on where's value placed, where where's kind of the power of the deal residing. It's a challenge. That makes a lot of sense. Can you share a story of, of where uh, a, a poor HR infrastructure led to a failed acquisition? Sure. It's not uncommon. I'll go back to the IBM example. So IBM has... Um, a history and very mature processes and a way of doing things that are very established. Uh, and they acquired a startup, which you know has all the elements that we would know and see in uh, the startup world, right? Beer Fridays and very casual uh, ping pong contests were a, a, a common thing that occurred within this organization. And this was the one I'm thinking of occurred about 12, 13 years ago. Um, so in that setting, the HR support for the startup was really designed to uh, allow for and reinforce that casual culture. They were the furthest thing from HR police. <laughs> so a lot of things were allowed to exist. And so there's sort of this risk continuum uh, the risk continuum in the case of the startup was very low. Yeah, what we will allow risk, right? Where in the case of the um, uh, the IBM side of the acquisition, uh, they were rolling in. I think there were three or four HR professionals, and uh, I know one stayed. The other three left because, in part, it just wasn't fun anymore, and it felt too restrictive. And this is not what they signed up for. And they didn't want to get wrapped up into the political malaise and the complexities of just getting things done fast, which can be replicated in, in really any discipline. Uh, so that's that's what I see not only in the HR discipline but in marketing. And so just name it, right, is that if a much larger entity acquires a very small entity, that gets to be a challenge in and of itself because just the nimbleness of a small company culture being rolled into a larger one is um, is a challenge as to whether um, people are going to fit into that setting. It's different for them. Some people come to realize, I just like working in small companies. 
And the way I came to realize that was after I had been acquired and worked in a small, uh, larger company for a period of time. Do you have a story of, of where that scenario turned out favorably? A success story? You know, the first acquisition I was involved in, this would have been 23-ish years ago, uh, was with Applied Materials, large semiconductor manufacturing company. And they had a business unit that they called gas panels. And they wanted to outsource, or not outsource, but effectively carve that out and sell that off to a, uh, a very large, much larger uh, global company that does business in the liquids space. <laughs> they were in all sorts of liquids, including water. And so this was 23 years ago. Water was becoming recognized as a tremendously precious resource. This is before the notion of that we would have water in bottles just routinely available to us. Um, and they were sort of an early uh, adopter of that notion, or maybe they introduced that notion that water actually could be sold side by side with sodas. Who would have thought this? <laughs> and have effectively the same value. So anyway, I'm getting off track. So um, that acquisition was done with all the diligence that uh, I described with the IBM deal, much larger company. They had uh, their acquisition team. They um, were uh, very disciplined in how they considered whether deal value would occur. They were very thoughtful on project integration planning so that when the uh, switch was flipped, it would be seamless and that the employees would get actually greater value to every element of their work experience coming in. And that was purposeful on their part. So an employee would wake up the next morning and not only feel like they were doing the same thing, and in this case they would be adopting uh, themselves into different processes, they would actually move to a different site, uh, at least reasonably within the same um, uh, metropolitan area. Uh, so there were changes they were going to face, but they were going to make more money. They were going to have richer benefits. And in some cases, uh, they would take on more meaningful responsibility. This was such a purposeful, intentional thing on the part of the acquirer that um, these employees came in and they had a chance to thrive. They actually knew what their uh, career path would look like. That's how smart these folks were. Is they said, we value you in your current role. And here's what uh, a professional growth path could look like for you. Here's where you have a chance uh, to continue to develop your skills. And we'll help pay for that. So what an incredible story they told. And that's what uh, distinguishes, I think, the potential for a successful deal. Are you telling a great story that people can project themselves into? M most acquisitions I've been associated with aren't thinking of those terms. They're desperately trying to figure out, are we going to get deal value out of this with financial modeling? And I'm not discounting that at all, but there are many more elements associated with this to round out deal value. And that would be my prime example that I saw firsthand. And that was my first acquisition I was involved in. Wow. To where... Um, the employees were like, yeah, boy, I'm glad this happened to me. <laughs> and, you you know, you don't face that too many times where people say, I'm so glad we were acquired. What were some of those elements 
you were looking for when you were in due diligence with companies that um, the company you were representing was thinking about acquiring? When in approaching it from like a, an HR perspective, a culture perspective, what were some of the due diligence items you, you look for? Well, I have an exhaustive punch list of things, and many of those are the practical ones that I've already shared with you, uh-huh. because it will feed into um, cultural considerations. Uh, it, it's a telling sign. If a company that's being acquired has been doing a number of things that um, cause people to feel like this is a great place, they're already telling a great story to their employees, and we're able to um, – uh, get that sense. Uh, there's a recent one in which um, uh, a company is uh, acquiring a carved-out organization, and the employees have benefits almost fully paid for them. This is a rarity now in, the, in this uh, sort of business climate that we're in because medical benefits are so much. Um, employees are taking more and more of the share of the load. We know that, right? It's sort of the social story of the moment. But anyway, here's a rare condition in which employees had um, most of the benefit premiums paid for them. Um, the 401k match was very rich, like up to 8% matching participation. Phenomenal. Pet insurance, <laughs> right? And a number of other perquisites that you typically wouldn't see. And so the acquirer discounted that, not taking into account what would be at stake. In fact, even further, to make this an even uglier story, the acquirer uh, determined that when we lay people off, because they knew they wouldn't be able to keep everyone, they decided, you know, there's no need to bake in any um, severance costs. And so can you imagine? So these employees who had had a rich Uh, wonderful work experience. They spent most of their daylight hours with these other people around them, so they had formed significant social and personal relationships. And then the acquirer comes along, and the acquirer wants to get deal value, yet they hadn't thought of any of these conditional things. Uh, And so they gave them much lower, less rich uh, benefits, they laid some people off and gave them virtually nothing in terms of severance. And the practice and the history of the, um, the company that had these employees on staff for years was, um, even though they didn't state it from a policy, they had a practice um, of several weeks per uh, year of service. So they would at least know they, they would uh, be able to land with some uh, financial cushion. So the combination of all these things, the the way I view this, Mark, is that um, anything that you do that impacts an employee and they ultimately leave, the retained employees take a look at that and they make a determination, can I sign up for that company that's acquired me based on how they treated my friend that I worked beside who's suddenly gone? Thus, um, deal value is eroding. You know, I think that's our theme here is, yeah. you know, how do you maintain deal value? You've got to um, do the extra work from a human capital perspective. What are some strategies can most companies apply in the human capital um, management, their strategic human capital management area that could benefit them from a value perspective? 
Well, this will sound self-serving, but bringing in a higher-level human capital expert to partner with you in doing the due diligence early on will give you a sense of what ultimate deal value can look like and what are the strategies for alignment of all the things that we've been talking about or I've been sharing with you that will ultimately result in a better outcome. Uh, And the reason why I recommend a third party is because third party brings no bias. They have no history. They have no personal preference associated with it. They, if they're worth their salt, they just bring best practices. And they can also call BS if someone has such an overriding um, interest that is off the rails of a, um, a reasonable business um, uh, assessment, you know, a, a, a metric that just doesn't jive with what we know to be um, a preferred outcome. So that would be my my recommendation. That can't always occur. If I could uh, um, shift a little bit, I can recall a uh, an acquisition, more than one that I've been involved with, that was in essence a fire sale. So <clears throat> when companies may be months or weeks away from uh, reaching their burn stage in which they just have no more cash available to them, then um, they don't have the luxuries of what we've been talking about. Um, They simply need to find an exit rapidly, and they're not going to get anywhere near, near the value they were hoping for. They could have been issuing stock through multiple rounds of funding. Employees may get nothing in terms of deal value. Recent investors may get only pennies on the dollar. Their early investors may get something, right? So in those cases, we simply don't have the luxury of going through all the rigor that I've been describing to you, right? Then it becomes, um, then it is much more transactional out of necessity because you can't even really apply uh, financial resources into the support structure uh, that you would prefer to have to make this happen. But if it's fire sale, you're really trying to just uh, call out some amount of value. About how long does it take to employ some of the strategies that, that you use? It, it really does depend on a number of things. Is it a global deal, right? So you've got uh, – and could there be more than one uh, subsidiary that's being rolled up and in, right? There are all these conditional things that can make it more challenging. I just got a call this morning from a PE firm who um, said, we need to close this deal in 90 days and get it up and running. Now, you're raising your eyebrows. I'm so accustomed to that now that, um, you know, I don't bleak an eye, but uh, this one's a carve-out, about 400 head count, and this is only through a brief conversation so far. But, um, I mean, they may be buttoned up, and this could be – you know, very straightforward. We have our punch list. We move through these things, as I've been talking about, and this could go uh, like clockwork. So um, 90 days could be um, relatively straightforward. I think the deal we had with my company, now we were a modest under $10 million uh, local service uh, company, right, with all of our employees effectively intact. Um, So that one... um, that was a 90-day deal, and I think we had some breathing room in that to get it done the right way. 
Yeah. Uh, when should companies bring in someone who's an you know, experienced HR consultant? Maybe not necessarily in light of an acquisition, but just to kind of set best practices. I can't think of when they would not want to. I shouldn't say that. There's some really bright minds in the disciplines that uh, turn in, uh, a business on, financial minds and marketing minds and sales minds and HR minds. And so um, in some organizations, they can be fully self-contained. And by knowing how things work within the four walls of the organization, the uniqueness of that, you may be perfectly fine. But there's plenty to be said for bringing in an outside perspective to check your um, your point of view, to learn where the best practices are. And naturally, I have a leaning towards that because it happens to be what I do. But um, you know, we find that time and time again, if people only define themselves, this is even in larger companies. I mean, you can be, you know, I kiddingly used to say, hey, if people uh, come from the town of Dell, then all they know is the town of Dell, right? They get their dry cleaning done at Dell. They have breakfast, lunch, and dinner at Dell. They get married um, and divorced and have an affair all within the town of Dell. <laughs> so um, the, the downside with fully defining yourself within the town of Dell is that you may be missing out on a number of interesting best practices that are out there that may be of value to the way you're trying to solve problems. And I'm picking on Dell because the fact of the matter is Dell is uh, now very well known for going outside of its four walls to constantly look at where the best practices are and to bring them in to accelerate themselves um, and, and position themselves well into the market space uh, because they've learned uh, over the years. I think Michael Dell's on record for saying that's where we lost our way is we felt like we owned the world and we knew the world and we defined everything about the world, our world. What advice would you have to companies thinking of selling their company? Uh, and the advice here being from the human capital perspective. Well, <clears throat> if they're positioning their company for sale, then they need to be, and if, uh, let's say it's a closely held company, um, they need to be the advocates for their people. Uh, from early on, they need to be not only representing those other disciplines operationally and financially, but also from a uh, human capital perspective. Uh, not in an overly altruistic uh, caring of people they love perspective, which is great, and they should, but from a practical getting them over the threshold into the new work environment uh, so that they can be contributors to the value of this deal. I would think that um, most uh, owners of companies, leaders of companies, they, they're they have a vested interest in making that deal successful, even though they may be stepping away from it. That was certainly my case. Um, I, I was so sad when any of my uh, employees left because um, those employees signed up to work for me and my business partner. And uh, because 
you know, they felt they could trust us, and um, they attached their professional futures to us. Uh, so if any of them left because they didn't feel like the deal was uh, aligned to their interest, I felt sad about that. Uh, and I think uh, other leaders of organizations who are positioning a company for sale, from a human capital perspective, um, they have a better chance of making that deal successful if they uh, lead with uh, financial outcomes and people outcomes perfectly aligned from day one. And last question is, what advice would you have to buyers of companies um, from a human capital perspective when considering an acquisition? Same applies. Yeah. Um, from the earliest days. Uh, and again, some of this is very practical. It's amazing how I, I've been called in, my firm's been called in so often to play catch up. Mm. They're way down the path of doing all the other diligence elements. And then we're called in, um, and it, uh, I could tell you so many war stories, that we're playing catch up and they now are hitting all sorts of aha moments that they get and consider. So same thing applies, Mark, is at the early stage, align financial value with human capital value. you got a fighting chance for a deal to be successful. It makes perfect sense. David, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Mark. And where can people go to learn more about you and, and your firm? AustinWorkNet.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure.